Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. VPR is staffed by Master of Public Policy students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Welcome to Academical. In this episode, we are joined by Michael Finnegan, president of Atlantic Media. They were kind enough to host myself, as well as VPR associate editors Anna Higgins and Ashley Boltman. Enjoy. My name is Joshua Margulies. I am the executive producer and host of Academical. We are joined by VPR's associate editors Ashley Boltman and Anna Higgins. Hello, I'm Anna Higgins. And I'm Ashley Boltman. And today our guest, uh, who was kind enough to host us today, is Michael Finnegan, the president of Atlantic Media. Welcome. Hi. Thank you all for having me and everyone out there in listening world for for listening in. Well, I think this is uh, definitely going to be an interesting episode. Uh, So to get things started, you are a UVA graduate. You want to speak a little bit about that, introduce yourself and what you do here at Atlantic Media? Sure. Uh, I can give you the the, the quick elevator speech. Uh, I'm a double who, actually. Graduated uh, undergrad uh with an economics major and then went back five years or so later uh, and got my MBA from Darden um, bounced around uh, well didn't really bounce around after Darden I, I went to one place I went into consulting for like uh, five years or so uh, largely focusing uh, and oddly relative to my current role but largely focusing on energy and industrial consulting sort of looking out at, um, uh, you know, long-term energy trends and helping uh, energy companies figure out, uh, you know, their portfolio makeup, what sort of investments they wanted to make today, given what they might think about various energy prices and resources 20, 30, 40, 50 years uh, in the future. And as is the case with energy consultants, made the obvious leap to, to media um, and joined, uh, joined Atlantic Media. Uh, I just had my eight-year anniversary a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, and I joined Atlantic Media basically at that point in time to found a, a center of excellence within the company that was focused on using business analytics and long-term trend evaluation uh, to help determine new business models. Uh, You know, our primary business models at that point in time were advertising and uh, and circulation, uh, and and still are, but how how to evaluate new business models and also utilize uh, data to inform our operation, uh, and that was eight years ago. And, and since then, um, I've also been the CFO and then the COO and president now for the last three or four years. And I can talk a little bit about uh, Atlantic Media as an overall organization, if that helps. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Atlantic Media uh, includes the Atlantic, which is your most yes. well-known. Uh, I guess, enterprise within Atlantic Media. Uh, you also have Quartz, City Lab, National Journal, and the Government Executive Media Group. Yes. Am I so, missing anything? No, that's, that's, that's mostly correct. Uh, yes, the Atlantic is our most well-known. It reaches uh, 
you know, 30 to 40 million people monthly, and it's our biggest sort of consumer brand. Um, City Lab, which you, you mentioned, which is, is one of our brands, is actually a, uh, a subordinate entity within the Atlantic. So from a business structure perspective, it's, it's within the Atlantic. Uh, Quartz, which is QZ.com, our, our global business site, Technically, we don't own anymore. We we sold it uh, last August to a Japanese company called Usabase. We still have a managed services agreement with them, and so we're very involved with them for about six more months. And then we've got National Journal, which is uh, policy and politics and a little bit more uh, B2B-focused, and Government Executive Media Group, which has a variety of brands beneath them. It's got the core government executive brand. It's got Route 50, which is about state and local. It's got NextGov, which is about IT and government. Defense One, which is about defense. And it's structured much like the Atlantic is, which has a variety of sort of subordinated businesses uh, within it. Great. And we will definitely be touching on you know, business model uh, throughout the, the interview today. Uh, but I want to get the audience just a little bit up to speed. We first met uh, in October of 2018 at an event that was co-hosted by the Batten School, Darden, and the Law School at UVA, Mm -hmm. and we talked a lot about the the business of freedom of speech where you were the keynote speaker, and I wanted to revisit some of the the issues that we we talked about then uh, because I I do think that the audience would get a lot out of hearing from you. Sure. so in one of our other episodes, we interviewed uh, the editor-in-chief of a, uh, the Virginia Mercury. Um, and we talked about you know, their business model. And for the time being, they can't really say that they have a business model. Uh, they largely have uh, you know, investors who are yeah. keeping them afloat for the time being before they can transition to uh, a donor-backed model. Uh, and you know, they're relatively small and new. But the Atlantic, we're talking about an institution that is now 160 years old, yeah? Yeah, over over 160 years old. So can you speak to a little bit how the business model has changed over the years, and particularly in recent times? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, there's not the best uh, records that, that I have of how the business model of the Atlantic was for probably... 140 of those 162 years. Uh, yeah, I think it's 162 now. Um, but I can I can specifically talk about like the last 20 years, which I think is is the most important. Uh, you know, from what I know prior to that, and certainly during a period of that 20 years, the Atlantic specifically was not a profitable enterprise, and it was, um, you know, it was a for-profit enterprise. It was not without trying to be profitable, but uh, it wasn't profitable, and so a lot of times it was supported by the uh, the generosity of it, of its owners. Um, you know, let's go back maybe fifteen years uh, at the Atlantic, and what you'll look at for the Atlantic at that point in time was probably not surprising when people think of uh, of a magazine uh, that was coming out in the early two thousands. The fact of the matter was it was supported by two major revenue streams. One was advertising in the print magazine, and the other was uh, circulation, and so the audience paying for their subscription fees. Um, over time, you know, advertising and subscriptions 
have been still remained a huge part but what's changed is sort of the makeup of that and I, really it's it's like print and digital so if you look at and these are rough numbers if you look at uh, the business 15 years ago or so like 80 to 90 percent of the revenue came solely from print sources either from the print ads that were in the magazine or from uh, you know, the, the, the circulation of the, the print magazine itself, the subscription fees for that circulation. Today, print makes up about, about 20%. That's almost flop. So it, it was like, call it 80-20 print before. Now it's 20-80 print uh, today with so many other things coming in there to fill up that, that other 80%. Um, you know, the biggest one, of course, is, is digital advertising. We were reaching, I don't know the exact circulation figures, but call it 500,000. Uh, we had 500,000 paid subscribers. Our, our readership was north of that because they, they do pass-through rates. So, you know, one household may have a subscription, but three people in that household may actually read it. So the readership was larger than that. Um, but today, while still having around 500,000 subscribers, we reach 30 to 40 million uh, people on a monthly basis in, in digital. Um, so that's a huge part of our business. And the advertising in digital is 10 plus times the, the, the size, the advertising revenue is 10 plus times the size of uh, you know, print advertising today. And that's because print advertising is declined um, while, while digital advertising has increased. But we also, uh, we have a whole bunch of new business, lines of business. We've got an events business that puts on close to 200 events a year. And these are events that bring, you know, our audience in uh, for, for major consumer events. They're also smaller events that bring subject, subject matter experts in. We'll do events. Uh, we did an event in New Orleans on the 10-year anniversary of Katrina and how that hurricane and the subsequent uh, treatment and recovery of the hurricane affected New Orleans over that period of time. So is this something like TechCrunch and now they have Disrupt where they host these yeah. tech conventions? Yeah, okay. exactly. We've got, we've got two or three really big events. One is the Aspen Ideas Festival, which we co-host with the Aspen Institute. It's like seven days out in Aspen, um, you know, five, six, seven thousand people come, you know, to hear people talk about big ideas. Uh, you know, we have the, uh, the Atlantic Festival, which occurs here in Washington, D.C. Uh, this last year, I think we had something like 8,000 attendees over a two or three day time period. Uh, we, we put on uh, an event in partnership with Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Aspen Institute called City Lab where we bring 200 global mayors from around the country or around the world to one place to talk about issues affecting city lab, cities. Um, so, and then we have tons of small events. Like we'll have, uh, you know, uh, an event that's much more focused on health policy. Um, and these events are sometimes supported by people paying money to attend. And sometimes they're supported by an underwriter or sponsor. Um, but that's become a major portion of our business, both from an economical perspective, but also as a way that we interact uh, with our audience. We have um, a consulting business that 
uh, takes the lessons that we've learned from our transition from print to digital and how to, to, to uh, create content for the digital age, how to distribute content for the digital age called A57, uh, Atlantic 57, that uh, is a large portion of our business now that started five or six years ago. Um, and then we've got a variety of sort of ancillary things that are uh, fit into these, but you know, we've got uh, various podcasts, we've got a, a variety of great newsletters, um, we've got a video teams, a lot of this fits more into editorial, but all of these things have created a much more robust platform for the Atlantic uh, to send its content out and to interact with. Uh, its audience and it's been it's resulted in extreme revenue growth for the business um, and I think it, it only op opens up more opportunities for us going forward so you talked a little bit about the switch from print to digital and I was mm -hmm. wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the challenges that the Atlantic has faced with that transition but also you talked a little bit about with the consulting business how the switch from print to digital has affected content. Um, what specific changes have you seen in terms of that? Um, you know, uh, fundamental changes to to our mission in the content that we've put out ha haven't really occurred, but tactically, we've seen you know major changes uh, both from you know, our staff size, our staff focus, uh, all the way to how we put content out. And, and, and you know, I think the, the key to thinking about this is thinking about how things might have functioned in a, in a solely print era versus how they, they function today. I mean, ultimately, we still want to put out the same high quality content, but a lot of things change in uh, when we were doing you know a single print uh, magazine a month or really just 10 a year um, now we're publishing every day every minute we're publishing in the middle of the night on the weekends all throughout the day so your pace of, uh, of, of story creation article creation and the amount of time that you're able to spend on various articles changes so we still do plenty of articles in the print magazine that somebody spent three months on. Um, we will spend have digital stories that someone will spend significant amounts of time on. But we'll also have stories that people will put out because we got a, a scoop and we have a piece of breaking news. Or something major has happened and we want to uh, provide a smart take or, or commentary on it. So I think the challenge was in how to get from the old way of doing things to the to the new way of doing things. So you know, you had pace changes, we had format changes, you know, newsletters, video, audio, uh, blog posts, uh, interactive multimedia, sort of photojournalism. Um, digital also provided a new opportunity for audience engagement that just. You know, audience engagement when you had a print magazine was like letters to the editor, which were interesting, but just very controlled. And, and you know, the back and forth time frame was really elongated. Um, and then, 
you know, with digital, it's just it's just a whole other opportunity to engage with your audience. And then finally, there's there's distribution and how you're reaching your uh, your audience. Again, with print, it was you either have a subscription and it shows up on your doorstep or in your mailbox, or you go and get it from the from the newsstand. Here, I mean, you can come to our site, you can follow our uh, social media pages. Um, you know, we can send newsletters to you. You can listen to our podcasts. Uh, there's just so many different ways that we can get out in there. And with each of those new distribution challenges and pace challenges and format challenges, um, or changes, I guess, not challenges, comes a, a new challenge. And it's just how do you learn how to do this when you know, you have someone who's done one thing for their entire career, how do you, uh, you know, how do you, how do you adapt to that? And I think um, for us, a lot of it was about education and information, you know, helping educate people within our newsroom, within uh, the business sides of, of uh, the company, how these trends were changing, how, uh, people were interacting with these changing trends um, and helping them figure out ways to adjust, whether that meant, hey, here are, the, here are the ways where you can write headlines that help you get picked up in Google search better, or here's the type of information that we have to put on a website page in order for it to, to be searchable or linking. I mean, there's it's immense all the changes you have to make. Um, and so education and information were, were one part of that. Another part of that, uh, frankly, was uh, welcoming a new generation. Um, we put on, Atlantic Media overall, uh, puts on uh, our own fellowship. Um, you know, Anna, we were talking about a fellowship that you were thinking about earlier before we started recording. The Atlantic Media has their own fellowship. Uh, and it's a one-year fellowship. We have about 70 people a year, uh, you know, join us in this fellowship. It's, it's paid. You get placed into a functional area within the company. A lot of people in editorial, but definitely people in uh, product, uh, on business sides. And, you know, one of the things that I think is great when, when organizations scale uh, is the ability to bring new talent in. The, the faster an organization is growing, the more you can b bring new talent in. And uh, pyramid or structure type organizations like consulting firms, law firms, uh, have a great opportunity to always bring in, you know, the law firms hiring 200 new associates every year, or the consulting firms hiring 400 new uh, of, the, of their lower entry level. Unfortunately, for us, we weren't growing fast enough to be able to do that, and we don't have a pyramid structure that spits people out the top. Um, so the fellowship was an opportunity for us to bring young people who didn't have to learn, oh, here's how you interact with Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram, but people who were, were already knowledgeable about this stuff because they were native in it in their in their day-to-day -day lives. And that was a huge part of overcoming that challenge. We also have 
plenty, plenty of, uh, of people on the edit and business side that have 20, 30 years of experience that just learned that. I mean, we couldn't do anything without the, their degree of uh, experience. But I think the combination of them being, you know, being able to teach the old dogs new tricks and bring a bunch of new dogs into the mix. I apologize to any of my colleagues listening. I don't think your dogs. It's just the, the, the euphemism. But um, it really uh, helped change our approach. And I, I think it also, you mentioned something about, you know, current th- problems that we're facing. I think it also taught us a new way to address challenges so that we don't get caught flat-footed and we know that we constantly have to be adapting to whatever the new the new change is because the big platforms are changing all the time, uh, the way that people are interacting with content are changing all the time, uh, and, and we hope to change our relationship with our audience over time uh, to make it always more engaging, more impactful, and more audience. Well, on that note, you know, how people are interacting, so social media is definitely a big part of how people get their news nowadays, and in 2016, uh, or rather a 2016 Pew study found that nearly two-thirds of adults who get their news on social media uh, platforms, so Facebook, Twitter, the like, uh, they don't trust the news that they're consuming. So what is Atlantic Media's approach in combating that public mistrust, and how, how, how do you generally feel about this? I feel bad about it. Uh, I don't like that there's that mistrust out there. I mean, I'm uh, I'm from Kentucky originally, and uh, my wife is from Florida, and we go back to, to where we grew up. And, you know, here in Washington, D.C., in the Watergate building, as we look out over the Kennedy Center in the Potomac, there's not quite the, the same mistrust of media, but as you move farther from media centers, I understand why there's there's a lot of mistrust, but it always it also upsets me when when I go there and I talk to people. Um, you know, there, there's varying levels of mistrust. There are the people who think that there's like media conspiracies. That one offends me a lot because I'm like, look, I'm. Do you do you think I'm part of a conspiracy? Because I'm the person you're accusing right now. Um, but I think what's what the bigger issue is that. Um, Social media has a tendency to level, optically level the playing field for all content. Um, because the, the, the link in the image from the Atlantic or courts or government executive or national journal looks the same one from, you know, Billy Bob's, uh, Billy Bob's Max, Macedonian content factory. Uh, and that's really tough. That's 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 really hard because the platforms are not telling you that there is a difference. Um, so what Atlantic Media specifically does, uh, I think, I wish we could tackle that larger problem overall. I, I, I don't see a way that we can do it. But what I think we do do is by putting out quality content from a consistent and trusted source. Um, you know, I think that part of this public mistrust, uh, the the problem falls with the platforms. They need to get this really bad, obviously fake content off of uh, their platforms or figure out some way better, some better way to flag it. But I think a lot of it 
and, 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 and I'll say another thing, on, on trusted media in general, we always need to be holding ourselves to a higher standard. Um, we're not infallible. Mistakes are made on occasion, and we need to continue to minimize those mistakes uh, whenever possible and strive for perfection. Um, but I think, I think these news-consuming adults that the Pew study, was it the Pew study? Yeah, the Pew study uh, cited have a responsibility to be a more uh, focused and uh, distinguishing consumer of news. If they choose to consume news on these platforms, they need to not just say, oh, it's on Facebook, so it's news. They need to say, oh, what's the source of this? What's the context in which it's being shared? Who's sharing it with me? Is it a brand? Is it a paid post? Is it a promoted post? Is it from someone who I know who's obviously partisan? Um, and it's fine, you know, I, I think it's a great these are great areas for dialogue, but we just can't trust it all. And I think that people need to start uh, getting themselves out of their comfort zone. It's way too easy on social media to get stuck in an echo chamber of having conversations with a whole bunch of people that think things the exact same way that you do. And there's a real risk of a uh, amplification of false news when you're in one of those echo chambers. because. You know, I would so love to have $10 million in my bank account. And if I got a letter from somebody telling me that I got $10 million in my bank account, it would be so easy for me to just celebrate and go out and spend all my money and say, I got $10,000 in my bank account. Well, no, I should probably check and make sure that that is actually true. Um, and right now in these echo chambers, people don't believe things because they believe it to be true. They believe things because they want it to be true. And we gotta get around that. Like, we're never gonna find broader consensus uh, it, sort of in the partisan nature of our society today unless we recognize that there are uncomfortable truths out there that we need to rec recognize and, and reconcile and then begin to deal with. Right now, you know, if you find something out, a fact that you don't like, with social media platforms, it's really easy to say, gosh, I'm just going to go find somebody who's going to tell me that that fact's not true and tell me a fact that I like. And those aren't facts. Those, those are fake. And, and you've got to figure out uh, the places where you can get facts. Um, there was actually one thing that the Atlantic Media did participate in that uh, a variety of trusted news sources participated in was, uh, you know, we, we all got together and we put out advertisements that said, um, you know, read the Washington Post, read the New York Times, read the Atlantic, read, and there were like 30 or 40 sources in there, and we all used our ad space and our thing, our influence to push that out to say, read trusted news sources. I'd like, look, I would love for people to come and read some of Atlantic Media's news sources. Please, come, come, come and read us. Come and consume our audio uh, auditorially in whatever way. Come to our events. But, if you don't come to us, come to one of these other trust, great trusted news sources because the real key is getting news from a source that is consistent, has standards, um, and that you can trust. And not because they're going to tell you what you want to hear, but because they're going to tell you what is true. 
So on this note, Wired Magazine just published a piece recently about how journalism is not dying uh, and that it's simply kind of returning to its roots of, you know, highly partisan nature and opinion writing and, and the like. And, you know, people like Benjamin Franklin had very, very opinionated pieces and they wrote under pseudonyms. And what we're seeing today is not necessarily an aberration, but it's a return to form. Um, do you... Do you agree? Um, and if so, it seems like I, you might see this not necessarily in a positive light. Yeah, I don't... Um, I don't... One, I don't necessarily think journalism is dying. There, there is an aspect where some of the legacy business models that support journalism are under, under assault. Uh, and I also think that because of the new, some of the new business models that are out there, programmatic advertising and all these sort of ancillary ways to make money off of page views and clicks on the internet, it, it has created an incentive. There are dual incentive, dual bad incentives out there with the new uh, ease of making money on the internet. One is to put fake news out there just to get as many clicks as possible so that uh, you can make a quick buck. And another is actually to influence people and, and sow discord or influence people in whatever way you want, regardless of the facts. Um, both of those things are hurting the, the core mission of, of journalism. But I also think that there's, I would, I would hesitate to call it a, a golden age, but I think that there, the bar for quality journalism is going up in this age because we've got these assaults from all these various sides, that to be really good journalistically, you've got to reach an even higher standard. And you see, like in the last 10 years, some amazing feats of journalism through, you know, the, you know, the Me Too movement and uh, what uh, Ronan Farrow and some of the other author journalists have done with exposing Harvey Weinstein and the host of other powerful men that have... Uh, that have been abusive over their tenures. You've got, um, you know, the uh, the the newspaper in Indianapolis who exposed Larry Nasser and and his abuse. You've got, um, you know, the new some various New York Times exposés on the uh, you know on the the Russian investigation and various facts around there. Um, I think that the desire for facts and intelligent, well-resourced and researched investigative reporting is, uh, is still really high. Um, there is more opinion writing with obvious political ties. And, uh, you know, I, I think that As consumers and as media organizations, we need to do a better job of making sure when people are talking about what is a fact and what is an opinion, uh, and and those lines get blurred uh, a lot more. And with the assault on either side of, of sort of that fake news, like that gets that gets a little bit harder uh, and murkier for for your average consumer. Um, but I, I just don't think that journalism is dying. I think it's 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 transforming and it is under assault. So we've talked a little bit about this balance between like or like fake news and like real news. But something that 
I'm personally a big fan of Taylor Lorenz. She's an Atlantic mm-hmm. writer. She writes mm-hmm. about internet culture, and she writes about things like Instagram husbands and teenage challenges on TikTok and apps like that. Um, and I think The Atlantic has done a really good job of navigating this balance between having those more culture-focused pieces with these like hard news pieces, and I think that's a balance that other outlets, I'm thinking of like BuzzFeed specifically, yeah. it's had other news outlets have had a difficult time striking that balance. So in terms of kind of more editorial strategy, how has The Atlantic been able to yeah. uh, su- succeed in that? Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the president, so I, my, my focus is business, uh, and, and we, you know, while I, I have oversight in towards budgets on the editorial side, I don't, I don't inflect the sort of editorial content strategy uh, as much, but I can, I can give my view on how we've done what we've done and, 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 and why it's worked. Um, you know, I will, actually, I'd love to hear from you, what do you consider hard-hitting news. So I'm thinking specifically about, like, politics, politics. is one. Politics, that's what I was and thinking, yeah. when I think about BuzzFeed, like, I, I think, when I think about BuzzFeed news, I think they're a really great news source. They broke, I think, the Rachel Dolezal story. Mm-hmm. Um, but when people see that BuzzFeed wrote on a specific political piece, I think a lot of people that I've seen on, on Twitter or even just yeah. conversing with friends, they're they just kind of say something along the lines of, oh, well, it's, it's from BuzzFeed, so it doesn't really matter. It's the same place that you go to take stupid quizzes. And, um, yeah. They've got a, they've got a uh, sort of a there's, a, there's a brand problem when you, when you go as far to the various ends of the spectrum as they've gone. And I, I know that they're, they're working to, to, to separate that and, and solve that. Um, we've been lucky particularly at the Atlantic where, where Taylor writes, we've been lucky to have the 162-year history to really solidify our brand, and that gives us a little bit more latitude than, than a company like BuzzFeed that's 10 or 12 years old. Um, but it also was part of our founding. Um, I'll, get this, I'll get this quote wrong, uh, but in the founding sort of statement uh, when, when The Atlantic was launched, uh, you know, they talk about covering politics and uh, and and writing, but they also said something to the degree of uh, the healthy appetite of the mind for entertainment in its uh, various forms of narrative, wit, and humor will not go uncared for. And so, in our mind today, uh, and and back then, what that means is it can't all be super intense, hard-hitting news on politics or whatever else. We need to have stuff out there that will amuse you, that will make you laugh, that will inform you. Um, and I think I think we do a good job of that. Like some of our really deep political pieces, like our, uh, our recent cover story on the case for impeachment, um, I mean, that's, that's a hard-hitting piece, and that is something that you really have to focus on uh, to to understand, it's a very important piece, but it's long. It's it's hard hitting, like you said. We also have things that are a little bit lighter in nature. Um, you know, I think we we say we have a high low strategy, and it's we try and cover highbrow topics in a highbrow way. We try and cover highbrow topics sometimes in a lower tongue in cheek way, and then we also try and uh, cover lower brow to- topics in a highbrow way so that we're thinking a little bit more about 
Um, you know, there was this is an odd thing to talk about, but the, we we had a piece. Uh, you wouldn't think that the the um, the Atlantic would publish a uh, a piece on manscaping and pubic grooming topics. Well, we did a couple years back, and it was talking about the changing gender roles and what this means for the the, the interaction between the sexes. But in the end, it was a it was an article about pubic grooming. Um, but that was an interesting way to take a, take what some people might say is a lowbrow topic and cover it in, in a highbrow way. But I also think that we do, some of our most important pieces are, are cultural pieces um, that are not as hard hitting. But we had, you know, my wife, when she was, when we were having our second child, had just read Anne-Marie Slaughter's Why Women Can't Have It All. And it gave her, after being, you know, still being a, a lifelong feminist, but it gave her the freedom to feel like she wasn't letting down the feminists who, that had come a generation before her by choosing not to pursue her work anymore because she, she was like, yes, there is a fallacy in the idea that women can have it all. There's also a fallacy in the idea that men can have it all, in my opinion, but we didn't write that story. Um, you know, we wrote our most popular ever piece ever is... Uh, um, uh, I'm forgetting the author's name right now, which makes me feel bad. But it was, it's uh, My Family's Slave, Alex, written by Alex Tizan. It is arguably, in recorded nature, the most engaged piece of content that the Internet uh, has ever seen. Um, it was very long. And it talks about the journey of uh, his family bringing their slave over from Philippines and how they, how she was part of their family here in the United States for like 50 years. And it's not hard hitting news because it's a story that was 10 years old. I mean, she had been, she had passed away for a variety of years. I don't know if it was 10, but it was, it was powerful in its narrative. And it was powerful in, in thinking about the way that we, society engages today. Um, I still think Taylor Lorenz's pieces are really, you know, she one of our most popular pieces on the site. I think right now is one that she wrote about the Momo the meme, challenge. the Momo <laughs> challenge, killing our children, and you know, it's a really interesting piece about how things go viral and how people who don't know about the internet are are interacting with it. Um, so I think that this hasn't required as much navigation. As it, as it may seem, because it was both part of our founding and because the non-political pieces or the non-breaking news pieces are still really important in thinking about uh, our culture and our society and how, how it's evolving. And also just, you know, we don't, want to be, we don't want the Atlantic to be just the vegetables. We want it to be, you know, the mac and cheese and the dessert and, uh, you know, I want... I want people to be able to come to the Atlantic or any of our properties when they want to be amused or fi to figure something out for five minutes or when they want to uh, engage in one topic for an hour. Uh, and I think we can do both of those. And, and we're always struggling to like help people navigate that a little bit better. But um, I think we've done an all right job. Yeah, so we've, we've touched a little bit about public mistrust and consumers trying to discern the difference between fact and opinion. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask you if there were any other common misconceptions um, about your organization, whether that's the business side or the editorial side, 
um, that you wish you could correct in the minds of the public? And if you could correct it, how would that affect your work or the organization at large? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure if I thought for a really long time, I could come up with a great answer <laughs> for this one. The one that the one that pops to mind is one that sort of bugs me some, but is is maybe not the biggest issue. Um, but it's just the perception of our legacy footprint versus our, our current footprint. I mean, I talk with people today who are like, "Oh, I love the Atlantic," and um, you know, I read it every time it comes to my uh, comes to my house. And I'm like, oh, do you go onto the website? And they're like, oh, it's just the same stuff on the website, right? I, I prefer to read in print. And the fact of the matter is, is we put out 30 print stories 10 times a year, and then we print out, we put out 600 digital stories each month. There's so much more that The Atlantic is doing. So, you know, that, that favorite author that, that you love in print that maybe writes for us three or four times a year, maybe writing a hundred times a year for us in, in a digital fashion. Um, and, you know, not knowing that you can interact, if you love the Atlantic in print, that you might love the Atlantic on podcast or the newsletter. And that, that the Atlantic is just so much broader. The Atlantic is so much broader than, um, than the magazine. And that's, it's something, you know, our, our, our legacy is such a strength for us, as we talked about relative to, to BuzzFeed, for example. But um, that legacy of the magazine also is a little bit of a hindrance amongst some of our most loyal audience. Fortunately, the 30 million people who come uh, to the website on a monthly basis uh, know that we have a website because that's, that's how they got there. So another question we're thinking about is how does the... Atlantic Media Corporation find and keep its niche in this national news environment where news and media companies are becoming so consolidated? Yeah. Uh, I think that's, you know, that it's tough. But I also think that um, our legacy and our history has, has, has helped in that regard. Uh, you know, we're not a daily newspaper. Um, I feel like as, as a daily newspaper, you have a certain obligation to cover a certain breadth of topics because that's what people expect out of you. Um, so we don't, we, we're, we're freed from some of those constraints to sort of go wherever we want to go in whatever we think is, is the best use of our resources at any point in time. Um, I think the second way that we sort of maintain our niche is that we're not upstarts. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, we've got the, the Quartz brand uh, is, is definitely an upstart, uh, you know, only founded six years ago. Um, but overall, our brand has a lot of uh, legacy loyalty to it. Um, where I go, and it really, it depends on a, on a brand by brand basis because government executive and, and national journal are much more uh, business to business models, whereas the Atlantic and Quartz are much more business, B2C business-to-consumer models. Um, you know, speaking for the Atlantic in particular, I think, you know, we certainly break news and are right on news when we have something important to say about it, but a lot of where our niche comes is 
I think we have done a great job of transforming the legacy print news weekly into a digital format. So the legacy print news weeklies would, uh, you know, they'd come out on Friday and it was sort of like you'd get the previous Saturday, Sunday, Monday's news on Friday in, in print format. And that actually was a pretty effective way to get the news for a while. But, I mean, you'll see a lot of the weekly magazines have sort of gone by the, the wayside because that's just not as an effective way. You know, who wants to read Monday's news on Friday when you could be reading Monday's news on Tuesday? And I think what we do in a digital in a digital realm is, is a lot what magazines did. They didn't just give you the news. If you just wanted to know what happened, you got that from the newspaper. They give you the second and third level down in terms of critical thinking and analysis. And I think what we do is we're giving you the, the critical analysis and thinking on the prominent news stories of the day as soon as possible. Um, not right when it happens, because sometimes it takes a little bit of time to do the, the critical thinking. Occasionally, we, we, have, we have the scoop, we have the breaking news, and we're definitely out front on that. But I think a lot of what we do is being able to, you know, once you've read that something has happened, oh, you read the Michael Cohen um, testimony, and you read a variety of things uh, that were said about it. But you, when you say, gosh, I really want to know how other people that I trust are thinking about this, that's when you can go to the Atlantic and go to some of your trusted writers here at the Atlantic and they say they can tell you, well, here's exactly what happened. And also, here are some of the things that we think this means for an implication about what may happen next or what happened in the past. Or let's put this in a full context so that when you're having a conversation at a cocktail party later that night or over the weekend, you can look at the... Um, at the, the specific instance that we're covering in a more comprehensive light. And one thing I wanted to ask, uh, but since you mentioned it before, uh, about you know how you're venturing out into different things like events and whatnot, mm-hmm. one thing about the Atlantic in particular is that there is no paywall. Yep. Uh, is that only made possible because you are exploring these new opportunities in, say, events? Is the advertising not there anymore as it once was maybe no uh honestly you know removing the paywall 12 years ago is 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 partly what allowed us to grow as much as we did um and advertising still is you know still is a big supporter for us it it's not growing uh as much as it was at one point in time but, uh, you know, I think that you'll probably see a paywall in our future um, of some way, shape, or form. We're already, we've got a, a product called the Masthead out there that is uh, as an experiment with digital user payments. Um, we obviously, we have a robust history and, uh, and, and, and audience base that are willing to pay for our content today. Um, so I think that there's going to be some ways where we think uh, in the future about how to tap into you know consumer willingness to pay in order to fund continued growth and expansion of all of our business, whether that be just 
pure articles on the screen or more events or more podcasts or more newsletters or a variety of other utilities that we can provide for our audience. So we've talked a lot about the Atlantic in particular. Uh, and in 2017, the Emerson Collected, Collective, uh, rather, uh, founded by, I hope I'm getting the name right, Lorene Powell, Powell Jobs, Jobs mm-hmm. uh, uh, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs' widow, yep. uh, they purchased the majority stake in the Atlantic, mm-hmm. uh, and only the Atlantic, not all of Atlantic Media. Right. Uh, so you are, at, at Atlantic Media, still the managing partner, you're managing the day-to-day yep. operations, but that was the case was reported that it's only going to be that way for three to five years. So we're coming up on the end of that. About a year and a half in, yeah. So what is the transition phase looking like for the overall organization, Atlantic Media? Um, And what's in store for the Atlantic Media uh, organization in the next few years after Um, the transition? Yeah. uh, So the transition is going well. uh, And I'll put, for those listening, I'll put transition in in, in finger air quotes. Um, It really, not much has changed. Uh, you know, the thought is that at some point in time uh, that Emerson Collective will want to take over more complete operations. Uh, there was a mechanism agreed to in the, the transaction that would allow that to occur. Um, but right now, we're, we're actually not transitioning towards that. We're still working in partnership. And, you know, if it goes Five years or beyond, there's a mechanism for it to go beyond five years. Uh, I don't know that anything will, will change for, for a long period of time. Um, if it goes shorter than that, uh, I don't know that much changes. The, the, the businesses themselves are fairly siloed in their operation. The only shared resources across them are some, some back office functions like you know, legal support, HR and benefits, you know, some finance and, and billing, I, so a little bit of IT stuff. But even even a lot of the IT resources are embedded in the, the business units from like a product and development perspective. And then you have uh, a small group of people like myself who, who are over all of them and providing, uh, you know, strategic guidance and, and direction. Um, I think that's the only thing, when this transition does actually occur, that's the only thing that will really change much is, you know, the three or four senior corporate executives uh, that provide a lot of guidance won't necessarily be able to provide guidance to each of them. But each business unit uh, that we talked about has its own individual president that reports to me. um, And depending on who owns them or where they go, uh, they can continue to, to function that way. Uh, David Bradley, who owns Atlantic Media, uh, and is still the thirty percent within Atlantic Media, the thirty percent owner of the Atlantic, um, he stated that uh, he doesn't want to be in day-to-day operations of media by the time he's seventy, and that's like five years from now. So maybe he'll sell some more things, but there, there's really no rush and no hurry on on that. Or Maybe he just figures out a way to change the operational structure. But uh, the transition, again, in air quotes, is, is going well uh, because it's it's really not much different today than it was 18 months ago. Right. 
except that we've got a lot of great support from, from our partners at Emerson Collective. They have uh, allowed us to expand in ways that we, we never would have been able to uh, without their support and partnership. So moving on into, I guess, what we would call current events. Uh, in 2016, The Atlantic endorsed uh, the candidacy of Hillary Clinton for president, which marked only the third time in the publication's history that mm -hmm. uh, the editorial staff endorsed uh, a candidate for president. Mm -hmm. I think the other ones were LBJ and Abraham Lincoln. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and on the, Atlantic webs on the Atlantic's website now uh, is a top 50 list of the most, quote, uh, unthinkable moments of the, the Trump presidency. And as you mentioned, just this month, the March 2019 cover, uh, there's a story, the, the cover story is about uh, calling for Congress to impeach the, the president. Uh, so how has the Atlantic's endorsement and the recent writings uh, affected other parts of the organization's publications? Yeah. Uh, well, I will, I, will, I will put a variety of caveats out there on this one. Um, again, you know, uh, a lot of those things are, are, are very much in the purview of, of editorial, and, and so I have, Church other than being, you know, aware of them, I have very little say uh, over that and influence over it. Um, I will also say that The Atlantic still today re remains of no party or clique, which is our uh, our commitment to no, uh, you know nonpartisanship from the founding uh, stages. The impeach cover is is when you read into the article, it's it's the case for the imp for impeachment, not necessarily it's one person's uh, one of our writers making the case for impeachment, just like when Tanahasi Coasts made the case for reparations, it wasn't The Atlantic calling for reparations to be paid. Um, and uh, unthinkable and, and the endorsement, um, you know, I think each of those are, are, are couched in their own particular circumstances at the time. You know, the, the, each endorsement that The Atlantic has made has, has been less an endorsement of a particular candidate than a repudiation of, of a separate candidate, you know, um, you know whether it was uh, Goldwater running against Johnson with, uh, you know, famously uh, sort of racist invectives uh, and, and dog whistles at that period of time, um, you know, some of the views of the, uh, the Trump campaign and, and the current Trump administration relative to Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I'm drawing a blank on who Abraham Lincoln ran against right now, um, but it was also, uh, you know, slavery was a, a, a huge issue there. So there was, um, the Atlantic was also founded with an abolitionist point of view. So slavery and racism has played a huge role in each of those, uh, those three endorsements. Um, you know, honestly, there have been, not only has there been no effect really on any of the other sort of sister publications. There's really been no impact of those sorts of things on the Atlantic in terms of the way that I can tell that it's that it's perceived. I, I think that you know the Atlantic is a magazine uh, built on ideas and thinking about how to make the world a better place, and that is therefore seen as probably more progressive uh, and and has that reputation. Um, but I don't necessarily think that. That these things change that much of uh, our business relationships or um, our editorial relationship with our with our audience. 
So has the general political climate and rhetoric and the president calling media the enemy of the people, um, has any of that affected your organization at all? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it has made... Um, it's up the bar. I, I mentioned earlier... Uh, you know, we've got a re, you know, we've always had high standards, but the standards are so much higher when uh, a mistake feeds into this rhetoric of, of uh, journalism uh, outlets being the enemy of the people. Um, so that's made the job harder. I also, uh, you know, there's more fear. Uh, you know, there, there have been assaults on journalists uh, much more. Uh, hate mail. There's there have been pipe bombs sent to various journalism outlets. There was the shooting in Annapolis at the Capitol Gazette. Um, you know there there was just recently here in in Maryland, uh, just a couple miles from here, uh, a man was arrested with an arsenal of, of weaponry and uh, a hit list, and they were all journalists. The that, National Guard, right? Yeah, he was, he was a National Guard member. They were all uh, journalists that he was going to target. Um, you know, as we send people out on assignment uh, to cover things, we think a little bit more about security than, than we used to. Uh, we've made changes in the way that we operate our, uh, our facilities that provide more security. Um, you know, so it is, it, it, it is harder when that message continues to be delivered. And it's, it's something that I think is, is rough overall in the society that we're in where people can't believe that you can disagree and still have the same outcome in mind. Like, we all want what, what we think is best for our country, and we may have very different views of what that is, but you know, because one person doesn't believe you doesn't mean that they're an enemy of this country. And because one person doesn't believe you on this side doesn't mean you're the enemy of this country. It is different views of what the country may be, but we need to, we need to come to, to, come to an alignment that this enemy of the people talk is just, it's just not true. It's not true. It is, it is the enemy of me, the person who's saying enemy of the people. And, you know, I, I think that's unfortunate uh, that, that, you know, journalism is, a, is an institution and an industry that's supposed to hold uh, power to account, uh, you know, and speak truth to power. And we've got power right now who's trying to um, chip away at the foundation of that responsibility because they don't like being held to account and uh, they don't like truth being spoken to them. So this is something that uh, touches on things that I've written about recently and that we spoke about, uh, Anna and I that spoke about, uh, with um, Robert Zullo over at Virginia Mercury. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you operate a, a business that, uh, you know, has international reach, uh, especially with courts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say when we're talking about local journalism, where that is you know, not necessarily doing as well as, say, the Atlantic Media uh, organizations are. Mm -hmm. Do you have any uh, strategies or ways to combat this problem of news deserts that, you know, are populating the country? Um, 
I mean, if I had really good ideas, I'd probably go out and do them. Like uh, David, my boss, don't. Uh, I'm, I'm not thinking about leaving, but uh, I think it's a huge. It's a huge issue, um, and I don't have great solutions. I what I think honestly is that we need to start experimenting with more models. I think that consumers need to find uh, a time or, or ability to figure out a way to better support these uh, these local news deserts, whether it's paying for content. But I worry with that. I What I don't want to happen is for truth and facts only to be available to people who have the means to pay for them, because I think that's not going to bring us any closer together either. Um, I've got... Uh, I've got two theories of things that may work. One is a company that's sort of out there and um, uh, and operating. Uh, you know, one of the co-founders of Square, the the micropayment company, is doing a, a sort of journalism-focused startup about micropayments for content. Is this civil? Uh, it's it's not civil. It's called it's called Invisibly. Mm. Um, and it, it's not launching just yet, but the you know the, the conceit is uh, that people can fill up their digital wallets and, and who want to pay for content and pay for it, but people who can't afford to do that can uh, intake advertising in a much more focused way. Um, that is better for the advertiser, better for the audience, and eventually allows a, a, sake, a, a sake of monetization or a purpose of monetization. You know, right now there's there is a broken relationship between advertising and um, uh, and and audience and brands. So you know, you you come to the Atlantic and you know something pops up from you know, Bill's Auto Dealership, I won't use an actual brand's name, but Bill's Auto Dealership around the corner, right as you're trying to read something, you're like, ugh, Bill's Auto Dealership, why did you get in the way of me as I'm trying to read this? And you probably don't have a good perception of Bill's Auto Dealership. You're angry at the brand for allow the the, 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 the publisher that you're at for allowing this to pop up. Flip that on its head, if, uh, you know, if you go out to, you know, to the corner, what are the, is the Biltmore still on the corner? Yeah. Okay, so you go out to the Biltmore, maybe not on $2 picture night. Is it probably more north of $2 now, aren't they? Uh, they have different specials now. No, okay. A yeah. $2 pictures, <laughs> yeah. is, I'm dating myself. But uh, you go out there and, and, and Bill's around the corner auto dealership says, hey, I'm buying everybody in the bar around. You're like, Wow. This is great. I'm having a great time at the Biltmore, and I'm really happy about Bill's around the corner auto dealership. So there's a way in which we can reinforce with greater society that quality content has value, uh, because the internet sort of took that away for a while, where everybody believed everything on the internet is supposed to be free. But there's also a way in which advertising can help pay for that content in the way that it has for many, many years, but do it. Uh, in a way that supports quality content and supports better relationships between the brands and their readers and uh, the, the advertising brands and their, and their consumers and the publisher brands and their readers. Um, I think the other, the other way is a couple big national news organizations that have uh, little outlets into all sorts of local news areas where you, you could think okay, you're a local source, all you have to cover is these four or five 
specific local topics that matter a whole lot. And so you can do that in a much uh, lower cost way. And then you share the big national stories across. So, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of like local dailies had problems with is they all tried to write, you know, who's going to win the presidential election or here's this major hurricane story. How are we going to cover it? And it's like, look, why are you spending time doing that? Like, you only need a couple people writing those sorts of stories and they can go to every locale. What you need your local people focused on is what's happening at the city council meeting or what's happening with this construction around the corner. Um, and I think that that might be more sustainable. And this is, this is when I talked about the dailies feeling constrained to having to, to, to cover a certain range of topics. We need to break out of that. They need to break out of that and say, look, let's figure out what matters for us. But you also need the, you need your audience to, to still support that. Like that, that. Even if it's five or ten people in you know, San Jose, California, that there's a cost to that. Uh, and, and people in those local markets need to recognize that there's value there. So it, maybe you combine those two things in some way or another. It's, it's a thought, but if I had a good solution. We'd have it there. Uh, well, yeah, or I'd be out working on it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think you know, maybe we're part of that national, uh, that national side and we can discover partnerships. Maybe that's a good thing to think about. <laughs> New business idea coming for Atlantic Media, coming out of this. Yeah, so we've had an opportunity to ask you lots of questions as an executive of media, but I wanted our last question to be about you as a consumer of news. So in, in this current political landscape, in this media environment, how have your personal consumptions of news changed um, Yeah, in this yeah. context? Yeah. Uh, is it, is it, it may be weird, but I feel like I consume more media but less news and I don't know if that makes sense but sometimes the news is so exhausting and saturated particularly political news here in in Washington DC that I almost I'm consuming a little bit less but I'm still getting the the important stuff but I'm, I'm I'm seeking out a little bit more of the entertainment type news the stuff like you're talking about like Taylor Lorenz I love podcasts um, uh, you know we're, we're on one right now so uh, hurrah for that you have any but favorites I do I, I mean I love some of the high I love some of the Gimlet podcasts we were just listening to yeah, it we oh yeah I was listening to it earlier on my on my walk to lunch uh, the the they're doing a, the the most recent one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No. Yeah. They're doing the yes. Yes. No. Or sports. 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 I don't. I don't. That's as far as I've really gotten. So it's just starting out. It was something about an author and Natalie Portman. I think. But, it's a good uh, one. Yep. Uh, so I love Reply All. Um, I like uh, I like Startup a lot. Um, there's a couple others of theirs that I that I like that I'm drawing a blank on right now. Uh, you know, I enjoy some of the. Historical narrative ones, I still really like This American Life. I think Ira Glass is an amazing um, interviewer. I love the Serial uh, podcasts that, that, that come out of there. Um, so I listen to more podcasts, and I, and, and I think I seek out news that is sometimes a little bit more of a mental break rather than... Um, Rather than you know logging on in the middle of the day yesterday or the next or two days ago when uh, 
when Michael Cohen was testifying, I'm like, look, I know there will be a great story out tomorrow. Probably the Atlantic will have written it uh, about how to, uh, you know, how to think about this. I don't need to follow along with every play-by-play. And when I have uh, five minutes and I want to give myself a mental break, you know, uh, maybe I check out how UVA basketball is doing and what the the story about their most recent game is. Or, uh, you know, I go to some science and technology sites. I, you know, I try and learn something, but something that also gives my, my brain a little bit of a break from the, the stress of the, the hard news topics, and I mean hard uh, in terms of my own consumption of it. So I think that's how it's changed. I don't watch much cable news either anymore. I have a really hard time with that. Well, we want to thank you. You've been very gracious with your time, and you've been kind enough to host us here at Atlantic Media's offices. Uh, So, yeah, we would just like to thank you very much. We greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank Thank you you all. Keep up the good work. You can follow VPR on Twitter at VA Policy Review and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Virginia Policy Review. Submissions for the spring 2019 issue of our print publication are now closed. A big thank you to all of those who came out to Charlottesville last week for VPR's 7th Annual National Journal Conference. Links to the video recordings of the day's events can be found in the show notes to this episode. Editing for this episode was done by yours truly. Our music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Until next time, be excellent to each other.